Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast, a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is Sam Conniff. From the raves in South London which spawned Don't Panic to his youth marketing agency Liberty, Sam has never been satisfied with the status quo. Some people would probably describe him as a social entrepreneur. Those who've read his book, Be More Pirates, might be more familiar with the idea of a professional rule breaker. Since the release of that book in 2018, Sam has travelled the world building a community of changemakers. From innovative startups to the boardrooms of the world's biggest companies, Sam is continually spreading the message that you can make a profit while making a difference to people's lives and that you can scale a business while protecting the environment. We had a really wide-ranging discussion here. We talk about why you should start breaking stupid rules and how to remake them, how to face your biggest fears, modern ways of working and why we should stop using the term side hustle, and the role the marketing and advertising industry ought to play in sustainable business growth. Oh, and listen right to the end for a sneak preview of Sam's upcoming projects. I really enjoyed recording this with Sam. I hope you find it thought-provoking. Here we go. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to do this podcast. Mate, thank you very, very much indeed for having me. It's a pleasure. So we start all of our discussions by asking our guests the same question, which is, what's the wrong you want to right? It's a really good question. Uh, what's been your favourite one so far? Oh, that's also a really good question. Um, Whose podcast is this? The last podcast we did was with a guy called Peter Briffitt from Wagestream, and his whole wrong they want to write is about um, changing the pay cycle to give people more financial security and well-being. He's basically trying to put all the payday loan companies in the world out of business through some new technology. An admirable goal. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, it is pretty interesting. The wrong that I want to write, I find it hard to articulate. And I think I've been on this all my life. And I think that's partly the thing about me, right? Ever since my first kind of startup, which was nightclubs, like, so me, age 18, sweaty as fuck on a dance floor, four in the morning, completely convinced that I was saving the world. Like, I've always been out to try and write this great big wrong. But the other thing about me is I've never really known quite what I'm doing or felt like a grown up. Like I've got an invite to the party. <laughs> like it's like, you know, inside me, kind of, I'm assuming I'm here because somebody else cancelled. It's always been there. So the, the raves I used to, we used to put Save the World on the wall and like on the back of our flyers. And we were, I was really like naively optimistic about the benefit right. that this rave was having on the world. I mean... Where were these raves, by the way? Whereabouts? South London, Brixton, Battersea. Um, and Brixton kind of late 90s when dance music really blew up in, in London and then around the world, you know, just before the brands got to Ibiza or the walls went up at Glastonbury and yeah. when there was no fabric or Scala and all the kind of like the excellent big, you know, but slightly more industrial sized clubs came along. There was a, an amazing moment of kind of creativity and culture and entrepreneurialism and uh, I was, you know, caught at the kind of South London side of that and it was fucking great. So I've got no idea how any of it was doing anything like useful for the world other than it's just good for you <laughs> it's yeah. a form of communion um and then through my businesses don't panic was all about changing the world with a little bit more clarity but not that much more and then liberty was all about writing the wrongs for for young people who faced lack of opportunity around them and then over time aspects of that became tv shows that would get young people thinking and talking differently and we created a huge space reclamation program that would unlock spaces for young people in areas where there wasn't space for them to go and do the things that they wanted to do. We created magazines that span the world from Johannesburg townships to, to, to Bradford estates 
that give young people opportunities and platforms they wouldn't otherwise get. We've, you know, my last act in Liberty was winning the um, whatever the Beamer Grand Prix for changing the marketing industry from being something that sells people shit they don't need towards a place you know where where purposes are more adult conversation. And then in the book, you know, so it's it's probably about power and the sense of power and the frustration yeah. that I've always had in all of these things there's a similarity and one of the things that most annoys me ever since I've small is the idea that you think you cu- you haven't got the power to make a difference in the world and yet the truth is the only thing that makes a difference is individuals and then small groups of individuals nothing else does and so we all buy into this notion that we don't we're the powerless but once you've taken the blue pill or you know had your ayahuasca moment or whatever it is or or been redundant seen the bottom of the pit whatever the the fuck the life-changing moment is that suddenly broken through the paper walls of stuff and life around you you begin to see that those who have the power have so little power and we give them power by our continuance of the pretense that we don't and then all of a sudden someone comes along like Greta Thunberg is currently doing and now all of a sudden she seems so powerful because her story is so great and she's in this place and, and that's the bit, that, that would be the wrong that I'm most interested in doing. The, particularly now, particularly when power sits kind of in all the wrong places and the people with the closest proximity to the problems, there are so many interesting solutions and the, the, the one-dimensional and out-of-date notion of leadership that we've got feels so disgracefully imaginationless and devoid of, of the right kind of direction. This is the, this is the time and, you know, seeking ways to give people that sense of their real power and to feel it and, and distribute it and if necessary steal it from the places where it's being wasted that's that's my current articulation of the wrong i think i've always been trying to write so as you say even from those early days when you were putting on raves or starting your first business it maybe that wasn't maybe so clear to you in your mind then but there was an inherent feeling in you that you were doing something which gave back to a community which was being underserved in one aspect or another. Yeah, yeah, right back to the beginning, right back to being small and, you know, I've done my time in therapy and, and the rest of it and I'm sure that you know, my father died when I was very... In fact, one of my mentors in life, the kind of grandfathers of social enterprise, social enterprise being a kind of business model that tries to make some money whilst making a difference Yeah. that I thought I'd invented uh, in, the, <laughs> in the early 2000s, <laughs> only to discover it had been around for quite a long while. She says a lot about my naivety and my arrogance. Anyway, uh, Liam Black, kind of, who was set up 15 with Jamie Oliver and has been at every kind of major right. milestone of the social enterprise movement, uh, once said to me, Sam, you know, show me, show me a successful entrepreneur and I'll show you someone with father issues. And, and I thought it was just him being his typical kind of blunt self. Right. But actually, you know, it's kind of classic, isn't it? You're trying to put the world right for the wrongs that you've faced and we all we all do this and I think that there's a there's a notion a notion in most entrepreneurs journey particular social entrepreneurs journey where they go through the savior complex trying to inflect their view of what writing a wrong is and then I think there's a maturity which ha- hopefully happens to most entrepreneurs when they realize that their vision of what's right isn't necessarily right for everyone else and then you you begin to move into another space going back to your like early ventures then don't panic to begin with. Like I'm familiar with don't the don't panic brand as it is now, but that's obviously long departed from when you were involved. Like when you set that up, did that have that sort of social entrepreneurship behind it? Or yeah, was yeah. It more liberty I, I, with it that, I, that I mean, I see it still does. Uh, you know, their best work, the work that they won BAFTAs for, was the TV show that you know brought back satire and 
you know, the best moment in that you know, was them installing a stained glass window of Tony Blair in Tony Blair's own house, you know, uh, at the exact moment that he was you know, disappearing up his own ass, sadly. Um, and the work they did ending the relationship between Greenpeace, I mean, between Shell and Lego and the stuff they did for Save the Children. So that the campaigning activist side is, hmm. is there and it was there when we set it up. It came out of the rave days and, and making little club packs outside raves and putting flyers in them. Yeah. And then the thing that stopped it just being a club flyer pack was that we wanted to make this publication. And the publication from its very first episode was, hey, you, why didn't you go and do something less boring than just getting off your face? I mean, not every weekend. And we started putting in, like, evening course listings. I mean, who, what are you thinking? Like, right, to yeah. a bunch of 20-somethings, high as kites, you know, at the kind of heyday of how much fun London was. Uh you know, suggesting evening courses. And then we did like, you know, we did um, stop the checks on minicabs and, and it just kind of evolved into much higher, broader political. We did work with Banksy when he was really young on quite a lot of, you know, big global, pre-global warming awareness issues and Pete Fowler and other artists and we'd tackle all wow. sorts of really big topics and, and increasingly the kind of poster that it became it'd be found on walls all over the country and it had this kind of cult and cultural status. And I think the DNA of all of that is in there. Joe, who runs it now much better than I ever did, would prefer to kind of, you know, keep its kind of start-up uh, vibe and feel rather than admit that it's 20 years old. And I think he does that very, very well by a constant process of reinvention, which, you know, is kind of core to their success. But even he, you know, when we were right there at the beginning, he's, as much, he's more than I am an antagonist for change and with a strong anti-establishment feeling. I think well, I want to come back to Liberty a little bit as well, but when you talk about that strong um, anti-establishment feeling, I guess most recently or in the last couple of years, your book Be More Pirate has been your sort of outward expression of, yeah. of, of that sense. Um, for people who might not have listened to you speak before or read the book, um, could you give a little bit of background around how Be More Pirate came, came about, first of, of all? Of course, yes, I'd be happy to. So that journey of Don't Panic leads to liberty and a kind of frustration with the way the world works and this dawning realization of like the world of marketing and maybe there's a kind of place of influence and opportunity and so liberty emerged to be a marketing agency that can make a difference and you said you want to go back to that so we can go back to that but at the end of my journey of it after 15 years feeling really critical of the bollocks that's talked about brand purpose and the lack of leadership in what used to be and should be such an influential industry and the the cowardice at the top of so many businesses upon whom leadership is falling to, to take us forward when politics and policy is you know, largely let us down. Um, and just the frustration that that can end up in a you know, a really well-meant campaign about diversity or, or other interesting and important topics on the edge, on the outlying edges, but like this resistance to address the the obvious elephant in the room that it's the fucking engine that needs changing. Mm. Like sticking a catalytic converter up the arse of capitalism doesn't, you know, makes the exhaust smell better, but you need to, we all need to move to a hybrid model. And, and that's the real brief that marketing and the advertising industry, this is not the answer to your question, I'm sorry, uh, should be addressing, like, yeah. how do we, what's the brief to us in a, in a degrowth environment? Whereas at the moment, we're like the bottom feeders of, you know, the late stage capitalism when consumerism was going to look like a fucking war crime a few years from now. So that's the interesting bit that we should be wrangling with. And the 
as I was leaving Liberty and handing it over to a much better, younger, less cynical team <laughs> <laughs> than me, um, who are doing a much better job than I ever did, I needed a vehicle of escape and I was carrying on all my work that I do with young entrepreneurs and in them I was finding the op optimism which I'm you know, deeply and profoundly optimistic and I started referring to them as my pirates and I wrote a book that was going to be my kind of stepping stone into doing something else I didn't really know where I was going my identity and my ego was so caught up in liberty it been like nearly 20 years of my life um, and I got it commissioned by Penguin and it was called Purpose First and it was kind of me trying to make the cake case for this point like can purpose not be an empty euphemism for mm. marketing and is there actually a, a a different route to commercial growth that's sustainable anyway it was fucking like boring as hell and as boring as it sounds actually uh, <laughs> and would have probably been bought by the 2,000 people who already believe in that argument and um, I started comparing you know it would be like the the, the worst talk at TEDx Ballum, if such a thing existed. <laughs> uh, anyway, and then in a session with some of the young people that came to the Liberties Network, one of these lads said to me, where the fuck are all the pirates? Right. Where, what, what's happened? Where's your usual like interesting rocket ships and analogies? And I went back to my desk and I was like, why do I use pirates? And I, that weekend, went to the Greenwich Maritime Museum and started looking at the history of pirates, and I fell off my chair. Wow. And those are the stories that I... I used in the book to create a metaphorical vehicle that would cut through the bollocks of leadership now, the lack of role models that we have, and by drawing direct comparisons with rebels 300 years ago who fundamentally changed the world in a way that nobody really seems to know, could we find a set of new anti-hero heroes that demonstrate there is a different way of doing things than the, than the current lineup we've got? So the, the, first, the first sort of draft or that first, the purpose first was almost like, you're thinking I'm, I need to write a business book here. Yeah, yeah, um, well, well spotted. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I was using all this kind of business. And I was, like I said, said earlier, I was trying to, I was trying to be a grown up, trying to be the grown up that I'd never really thought I was. And it was awful. I really like justifying every sentence a thousand times. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it was a necessary part of the process. And then yeah. I. I found my voice and the, 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 the key to Liberty's success and the key to everything I've ever done and everything I know was the, the benefit that happened to me during the process of setting up Liberty when we started opening the door to young people. We're based in Brixton and every day really fucking smart kids who get written off by society would come in the office and share their lives with us and get involved in our projects and we didn't realise really what we were doing. It became a very sophisticated training programme that fundamentally changed kids' lives in a way that very very few services that are supposed to do so get anywhere near and at the same time we became a youth agency with insight that you know just put so much distance between anyone else trying to do it that make their head spin like we would we would win again and again because we had these real life kids telling us what what they thought and we'd involve them and find really meaningful ways for them to get involved and they taught me so much they taught me everything and so when i've tried to find my voice in the book i just started workshopping it religiously with really smart young people all around the world who are facing, who I think are where the solutions lie. So yeah. social entrepreneurs in townships of Soweto or really smart up startups in Baltimore and Detroit and this incredible group of young entrepreneurs in Athens you know, going through all the stuff they feel like. In those spaces, you're probably going to find the answers that 10 years from now are going to look quite good because they're dealing with the shit now, more so than you are amongst the morbid, self-interested anachronism at Westminster. Yeah, 
And as you say, it's, it's, those, it's those young people who you eventually ended up writing the book for, and I guess with its pink cover and its Be More Pirate as the title, like a call to arms for those young people to say, look, it's over to, it's over to you guys. Uh, yeah, I hope so, yeah. And, and therein kind of lies, goes back to the, the, the wrong I'm trying to write. You know, don't believe what you're about to be sold. You know, the majority of the textbooks and the tropes about how you should be running your... You know, if we are to fuck up this moment in time of, of entrepreneurship and innovation, like really by calling it the side hustle generation and, and what you know, patronizing it, like we can't help ourselves do with the invention of things like side hustle and the mumpreneur and like all this, you know, uh, how on earth can you be so absurdly, uh, you know, miss the point? And well, as in, as in side hustle is almost a term which is like, okay, yeah, you, you're all right to do a little bit in your evenings or a little bit on the side, but don't forget about your real job. Is, yeah, is, is yeah, yeah, to- totally. I think it's um, in our need to categorize the the mumpreneur, for example, you know, couldn't patronize more a moment in time when we're trying to redress a kind of broad imbalance in the economy, work and society. And actually here is entrepreneurship, let's just call it what it is, being utilized by uh, mothers as an option, op- opportunity or alternative to returning to work, like which is demonstrating all manner of you know, innovation, new businesses. And we'll only talk about it about ki- around the kitchen t- kitchen table business. <laughs> it's oh, like, yeah. fuck off. Like This is really important. This addresses flexibility. This addresses social equality. This addresses loads. And the same notion for the side hustle. There we all are going, well, what about Gen Z? Like, you know, needing to do different things. And is the workforce ready for them? And, you know, try really hard and find some smart 20-somethings at this firm who haven't got one or two other things going on outside of it. I was thinking about this the last couple of days. There's loads of us. <laughs> There's loads of us who do something here or there, some some related to marketing or what we do, others just completely different altogether. I've done this a few times, you know, ask the question to the room, who is broadly in their 20s and has got something going on? Depending on the kind of the vibe and culture of the place, pretty much everyone puts their hand up. The bosses are like... Really? Huh? What? What do you mean? Like, whilst at the same time having this daft narrative of we need to be more entrepreneurial, you know, that yeah. internal corporate lie. And, you know, this is, this is good. You're helping me really understand the wrongs that I want to write. It's exactly those ones. So, th- and, and here we go. So there is an example of the power being taken away from both of those demonstrations of independence, autonomy, and entrepreneurship. Because your little thing is just a side hustle, mate. You're, you're just a mumpreneur. That's just a kitchen table business. Like, and so there is the old world of power trying to hold on to its trappings of, well, we're real businesses. What? You know, which is the better? The one that offers flexibility, collaboration, you know, creative pursuits that discover new places where you find your fulfillment or the, the old nine to five and doing as you're told and 110 years old scientific management theory. Yeah. So, of course, the old world is trying to belittle it. I sound like a right conspiracy theorist now. <laughs> Sorry, there's some emerging thoughts that you're helping me clarify. Where where are we at on on that journey of, of change? Then is it ten years until the world of work is kind of unrecognisable from what it is now? Is it fifty? Is that an impossible question to you, pal? Not me. Like how how long do you want to put up with the notion of having to come to work at the same time in the morning? How how relevant does that seem to your life? Mm. How out of date? is that how annoying is that you know flexibility is largely held up certainly in my work as the mo- the equal to salary as importance so that's jumped quite a long way yeah 
the st- we were talking about emails and mobile phones and stuff earlier on. We know that since the advent of the mobile phone, we all work far longer every day, yet productivity stabilized. So you're less efficient per hour than I was in when I was at your stage. Yeah. That's shit. <laughs> you're being stitched up by technology, stitched up by the way of working. Your bosses are probably, you know, typically quite far away from the detail of the day-to-day because they have to be, you know, we've moved the position of the CEO and the MD to where it is. So they skirt around the edges, which is a bit annoying for everyone. Um, you know, it's, it's not great the way we work. I mean, not, not, not this place, obviously. Um, <laughs> but by and large, I think the conversation, well, certainly you were asking about Beam Apart and where it's taken me and the, the kind of essence of Beam Apart. I ask a similar question to you. So I'll, sorry, uh, now I just feel like I'm being critical. So here's where it comes from. The essence of Beam Apart, it completely took me by surprise and the book took off. It got me invited into a number of different businesses, which I really wasn't expecting. Yeah. And I developed a workshop just because it was interesting and to see what, what, how people could use it. And in the middle of this workshop, this, this question about what rules would you like to break around here and what rules would you make emerged. And what became really interesting was it turned into an analysis of what we call inverted commas rules at work. And not the, the, you know, not the Equalities Act that governs this place, which you know, everyone should subscribe to, or the Environmental Act or whatever ISO framework you've got, but the rules, the conventions, the norms, the cultures, the habits and the behaviours, the things that mean we do silly things. Mm. And it was fascinating to me. Like the things that would come up time and time again, and it just really and then and then the spirit of being more pirate would allow people to say, "Here's the stupid thing we do, which no one ever calls out." I say we stop doing it and we do something else instead. And because it was one step removed from your normal day to day, and a little bit romantic and adventurous, and there's an avatar of being a pirate into which you know we used to do fancy dress as pirates, so kind of there's something in us that's a bit little bit playful that we could step into, and people are like, "Yeah, fuck it, we're not going to do that rule anymore," and. And then four weeks later, they're actually not doing that rule anymore. And we're so used to innovation, away days, transformation, being a conversation where loads is discussed but nothing really happens, yeah. that that's the norm too. So here in this moment, this mutinous moment, the room said, fuck it, we're not going to do that because it's bollocks. And everyone's like, yeah, it is bollocks. And the conversations that take place in the pub or with your partner but never at work suddenly took place and everyone collectively decided to make a difference and therein distribute redistribution of power happened yeah and you also that i want to hear more about the stories that you've had off the book since i remember at the time you were saying that you started getting lots of emails saying people had quit their jobs yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> based yeah. off your uh, your writing that was scary yeah and that, that and i suppose this that's what started me on the track of it the book was just out and i started getting this regular drumbeat of people uh, dropping me a line and saying read this part of the book and it really appealed to me. You're totally right. You know, there isn't any change without mess. Uh, half of what I do is bollocks. And if I call bollocks on it, then what, am I, what else am I going to do? You're, you're totally right. I broke two rules today. And you know what? The world didn't stop. And I felt a lot stronger because they were stupid things that we do anyway. Yeah. So these slight moments of power distribution. And, and, and I'd say that now to anyone listening who's thinking that I'm either talking complete bollocks or there might be something in it. Ask yourself the very same question. You know, what do you do? What did you do this week? What's lined up that's a bit daft that you know you disagree with? And it's like time sheets. It's why were you here at nine in the morning? You know, when you're not a morning person, it's, you know, poor meeting culture. You know, there's some of the obvious ones, but it goes right through to budgeting, reporting, sign-offs, permissions, communications, like actually the stuff that really does get in our way. Mm. And if the point of work is to fulfill our greatest potential, and I'm just going to, that would be my definition of the point of work. I mean, there is come and earn some money, but... Ideally, there's more to it than that. Yeah. Um, 
then what are the things that stop you? And my guess is, from the work that I've done over the last two hours, after the last two hours, after the last two years, and I've been in hundreds and hundreds of places in front of hundreds of thousands of people, that about 80% of the stuff that gets in our way is bollocks. And the world won't stop, and the business won't stop, and our lives will be better off without it. Yeah. So that's the question. What can you spot this week, last week, or next week, and try out not doing it? Just see what happens. And my guess is, my bet is, in fact, I'll bet you now, get in touch with me, Tenor says you'll feel better off as a result. And is, is it the case that you can obviously start breaking these rules, as you say, you break the small, stupid rules, which no one ever n- knew why they existed in the first place. But is it that once you get to the level of breaking the sort of the rules of permission or sign off, which yeah. is when bigger change starts starts to happen or... Yes. Now, and, and I think this is the interesting thing. It begins to sound quite scary, right? Like, oh, in a rule. But we, we've got this hardwired notion because we're social creatures that we want to conform to our tribe and we want social acceptance. Therefore, we don't break the social contract which says that we should all behave. So we all behave. So uh, we'll all go to the meeting and we won't ask the question that we need to ask. So no one's going to say, actually, how much budget is there? That time frame's ridiculous. Uh, do you really mean you want to do this or do you want to look like you're doing this? You know, because these will all help us do really good work. Yeah. Can't say any of that. Two weeks later, we still don't know and we're fishing around the edges, you know, circling in the dark. So it's a trite example, but we, no one wrote that rule. No one said, don't ask on his question. <laughs> like that's not on the wall. It wasn't in the handbook. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, as well as I do, as well as you do, that we've all done it. And it's in that kind of space that I think this gets interesting. And when you break that rule twice, three times, it's like any other muscle. And with regular exercise, the muscle becomes strong. And at first you feel like a total weirdo for saying, I'm not coming in on time anymore because it's bollocks. And I do most of my work in the evening and I'm going to do an eight hour day and I'm going to do productive hours because all the science tells me that anything more than 40 hours a week is unproductive. This place has got a total culture of presenteeism, so fuck you, right? You'd feel really weird. Yeah. But four, year, four weeks down the line, you won't be a weirdo, you'll be the hero because you'll be doing more better work, you'll be getting stuff done, you'll be enjoying your life and you'll be going playing badminton or doing amateur or whatever the fuck it is that else is that actually makes you a happy rounded person. Yeah. So again, you know, no one would want to think presenteeism is what we what we advocate around here, but we all drag ourselves in at a time that doesn't feel you know, how can how can how can it possibly be the case that we all work best in the same time? It's like it's just it's difficult. And my daughter challenges me on it a lot. She's seven, right? So it's a really bad time to be talking about rule breaking. But obviously <laughs> she, can, she wants to know what I do and we, we discuss it. And my point to her is you need to know the rules before you can break the rules. And then when you break the rules, break the fucking ones that deserve breaking. So I took her to see the statue of Millicent Fawcett in Parliament Square and explained that Millicent broke all the rules. So, so badly that she risked her own life, everything she held dear, the reputation of the people that she loved. And thank God she did. So... That's what you're aiming for. In a small mm. way, meet bad meeting culture or you know, the pointlessness of the nine to five is not going to be here in a few years. So begin to break the rules with a degree of prescience to the future, not just the, the daft things that, that annoy you. Yeah. And knowing that sometimes doing the right thing is the wrong thing. So be brave. Hi there, Nathan here. I hope you're enjoying the pod so far. 
Really quickly, I'd just like to invite you to join the Journey Further Book Club, a community designed for time-pressured marketers who want to learn from other inspiring people like Sam and connect with like-minded peers in the industry. Our theme for the next few months is mental health, which has sparked some great discussion already. Just go to journeyfurther.com and follow the book club link to sign up. Now back to the show. And then I guess while well, thinking on a on that bigger scale, then what are the biggest barriers, whether it's in business or whether it's in politics or economics, what are the biggest barriers you see as uh, standing in the way of where you want us to get to? Good question. So what are the biggest barriers around here? So, you, you know, this is a well thought of place with lots of good clients and smart people. So in theory, you should all be in here changing the world. But same question back to you. What is it that gets in the way? Why aren't, why aren't you? Why do we need to have this conversation? Why aren't you all just cavorting around like pirates, dashing your cutlass through the bullshit of bureaucracy and only doing brilliant work? What gets in your way? I guess it's just you tell yourself it's like a perceived lack of time. Uh huh. Yes. Um, but that's almost like the, the easy excuse. Well, and yeah. as you say, it's like as soon as you just stop doing all the stuff which you just think is kind of not yeah. crucial. You, you have an, an incredible amount of time suddenly. Okay, so there is that. So I've asked this question God knows how many times. Like I say, I've done this, this session, I, I think about 250 times in various forms um, to what must be well north of 100,000 people. So I've done really wow. big group sessions of thousands at once. I've done small excos and leadership teams. I've been very lucky to travel extensively with it. So I've done it in different cultures and countries. And I ask this question a lot because at the same, same point, it's like, well, fucking hell, what if... If this, this, the spirit of being a pirate has caught so many people where, you know, there's been so many more clever authors than me and so many better thought through frameworks for me than bringing about change. So why is this like this roguish approach to, to change like, happening? Um, what is it? What's, the, what's stopping us? You know, if we can get that right, then we're, we're onto it. So I keep asking this question. I keep pushing at it. And a lot of people say what you said, the, the overwhelm. The time, the modern ways of working, meetings, emails, you know, inboxes, yeah, exactly. And then the other, you know, big areas, kind of projections of frustration, of middle management, of various, you know, what you're scared of, whether it's you're new in your job or you might be on a warning or you've got a mortgage or your children whatever. Yeah. And I started recording them all thinking, God, if I can find some synergy in all of this, right, if I can synthesize this down to like six areas, you know, we can really do something good. And once I got them all down, like thousands of responses, uh, actually there was only two. They all fell really quickly into two subcategories. Fear and admin. Fear and admin. Fear and admin. They are the enemy. That's what gets in the way. That's what stops all of us showing up and changing the world most days. So when it comes to admin, first of all, how, 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 do you, how are you defining that? Uh, what you just said. So time, time management. Yeah. Uh, the day-to-day, the email, you know, why, are, why is every meeting an hour long? Why do I feel like I have to reply to emails within 24 hours, even the stupid ones? You know, why is it that now people can text me outside of working hours? Why do I look at my WhatsApp first thing in my work messages at 6 in the morning? Uh, why do we have this stupid CRM program? Why do I have to do timesheets? Like, yeah. What the fuck is all this stuff that somebody has invented but not really thought through or thought of for me? Yeah, okay, yeah. There's yeah. bollocks, you know, that I've been told to use by someone who's not doesn't have to use it. <laughs> Speaking from personal experience. <laughs> um, you know, admin. We, we're pretty 
we're pretty badly organized in a gold rush of efficiency technology that we haven't really worked out how to use. Fear and admin. And then sitting in between fear and admin is you, you know, and the limits that you put on yourself. And the fear then, the fear is the, if I take, what if this risk doesn't pay off? By and large, yeah. So the fear is my bosses, you know, they, they say take risks and fail, but we don't believe them. There's, you know, I just need to get this job done. I've got a bonus target, difficult client, whatever. We're, we're, we're scared, you know, we're, we're fight or flight based creatures. Um, and it's a pretty scary place. And we're all terrified that we might get sacked, you know, deep down, even when it's highly unlikely. Uh, and so we operate by and large out of a place of fear, but we all work in a place of bureaucracy where the original method of bureaucracy was for management to tell us what to do our, our, our functional part of the role. Uh, and if not, we'd be pushed out of the line. How did you personally overcome the fear that you had uh, when you left Liberty and started focusing on the book? And Well, I nearly had a breakdown then because I was so caught up in my ego and identity around it. And it coincided, unfortunately, well, tragically, with a separation personally in my right. life. So it was like loss upon loss. And... And what I, I, what I personally did was I found myself getting something out of the attic and I found that box of stuff that everyone's got and in it was some of my first rave flyers and then the first Don't Panic Pack right. and then the first copy of Live magazine and some of the first like, stuff we made for Liberty and my first like, invite to number 10 and, and various proud moments that I stuffed away in this box and I bought some cheap Ikea frames and I put them across the wall of my study in a kind of linear order and pointing out to myself that with the advent of each new adventure, I had no idea what I was doing. And yet it had been formed at least 18 months before in the actions that I was doing when I didn't know what was coming next. And so what, you know, what you're going to do a year from now is based on here you are embarking on this podcast, like you said, kind of working out as you go, probably not planning on, you know, being a multi podcast producing empire, whatever, but you know, two years from now, that maybe will be what you are. And this is the genesis of it. Yeah. And, we do that with intent, but not necessarily knowledge of where we're going. And so at the end of the room, I put, that makes it sound like a big room, in this tiny room in the next corner, I put an empty frame to tell me that I don't know what's going next, yeah. but the actions that I've already taken are what's going to get me there. So how intentional do I want to be about this? Stop panicking. Like that, that frame's already written. And I found that really useful. And my translation of that is another question to you that I have learned to ask in these sessions. And again, it goes back to being pirates. Pirates were very good at facing fears. They, they were only 12, 12 royal cartographers at the time that had a license from the king to make maps, right? right? And because they hadn't fully discovered the world yet, and when I say discovered, they hadn't fully like raped, pillaged, and rinsed every last resource out of any unfortunate indigenous population that they could. Um, so in large areas where they hadn't discovered them, they would write at the edge of the maps, allegedly, uh, here be dragons, which would stop most merchant sailors going there. Okay. Except pirates would go, ah, where there's dragons, there's opportunity. In the darkness, there's freedom. This is the direction of travel. So translate that forward. The modern day interpretation of that is that in lots of businesses, they write empty words on the walls. We've all seen it. We all know it. They say bold, open, honest, trusted, brave, and whatever else. Yeah. Fine. You know, nice, well-meaning words. Uh, bravery, I've got to take issue with. I think it's a little bit masculine, I think it's very subjective, and I think it becomes empty and overused, and we talk about it all the time. The antonym would be fear, and in there lies something really interesting. So then the question becomes, 
in you know to your point about to me and and and, and fear and what did you overcome my guess is facing your fears has got to be one of the top ways of developing as a human being not 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 you know there's there's lots of different learnings you can do and other experiences which are also highly beneficial yeah. but facing something that really scares you overcoming it taming it whatever it is like by god like you know who who would disagree that you don't really really grow in those moments and also mm. then you put that fear behind you and you level up to be able to take on a bigger challenge you can help others through similar fears i mean it, as a, as human beings as a thing to do it's pretty profound and you can't do it too often. We are in a, you know, thankfully an evolved and maturing conversation about mental health and well-being. So, like, you shouldn't spend your whole time being scared. That would be obviously bad. But maybe there's a difference between good fear and bad fear. So let's assume there's good fear. And what would it look like if you were to actively choose to face your fears a few times a year? So then the question mm. becomes, what do you have on your schedule, on your plate, deliberately in the next, let's say, eight weeks that scares you? Yeah, I don't think I do have anything. Nothing springs to mind. And it would if it really scared you. Yeah. And uh, typically, I, I'll ask this of a room, and usually about 5% of the room say, yeah, I've got something I'm, I'm actively pursuing that scares me. And again, I'm not in a position to judge because I don't know what people's lives are or what their positions of privilege are or their, whatever the, the stuff they've got going on is. Yeah. But if you were two or three, maybe four times a year to ask yourself what scares you the most, to steal from Eleanor Roosevelt, who said once, if you really want to know what you should do next, you should choose the thing that scares you most. If you were just to do that in your career, in your in your unformed desire to have an impact on the world, in your haven't quite worked out what you completely want to do when you want to be a grown-up, you know, whatever it is, think of something that really does really does scare you. Interesting. And decide to do it. We have like a, a, a whole company thing every Friday where someone from around the company stands up and presents about something. Like something they're interested in, something they've been working on, um, and someone, someone was, someone stood up the other week, and they said beforehand they were like, "I'm terrified of standing up in front of the company," and I was like, "It would be fine." Like, and but I couldn't, I probably wasn't empathising very well because I quite enjoy that. I think, and well, I don't feel particularly terrified by it, um, but it was amazing to see her afterwards. Yeah, having done such a good job. Yeah, and I guess it can be something as simple as that, really. You know, the fear is is still subjective, but it's also uh, unavoidably honest. Like fears, in your, it's not uncomfortable. I'm doing something a bit difficult today. We've got a tough meeting. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking in your gut. I'm scared. I'd really like rather not do this, but I know I have to. Like yeah, scared. Yeah. Uh, what would what would what would scare you that you kind of? What's got that paradoxical notion to it? It's not on your to do list, but it's on your not to do list. Effectively, you know, what would what would scare you right now in your career? A complete career change would be quite scary. Mm-hmm. Or to do something which I have have no experience in doing before, so like completely outside of marketing or advertising would be quite scary. I guess I'm quite, I'm quite confident in this area now, so pushing myself to test myself to do something completely new. There you go. So confident can very quickly become comfortable. Comfortable is rarely a good thing in in work. You don't want to be uncomfortable all the time, like I say. Mm. That would be bad for your mental health. And maybe it doesn't need to be out of industry. Maybe it's you know, something else. But yes, totally. Something that you would be out well outside of your comfort zone. I, I, I find it, and I wouldn't say it if I didn't practice it myself. And uh, I've watched people consider this, be honest with themselves, 10 minutes later hit upon what it actually could be yeah and then fucking go and do it and 
and rather than you know it take three years for your slow accumulation of knowledge and experience to get you somewhere suddenly if you want if you want to have those leapfrog moments in your career like that is a you know, difficult i'm not saying it's easy but it's a it's a fast track hack to taking some huge steps forward put a little put a little fear on your long-term to-do list and put a little mischief on your everyday to-do list and you will go far my friends that's really interesting that's really interesting well i wanted to ask you a little bit i think sort of going back to liberty a little bit mm-hmm. and obviously youth and young people were at the heart of that businesses and then they became the heart of the audience which you were kind of targeting with with the be more pirate um stuff and you've spoken previously about a really interesting take on sort of sustainability in the marketing and advertising uh, industry and that idea that it's a bit of a race to the bottom it's just more people yeah. spending more money to try and sell more things that no one really needs and we can't support as a as a planet yep. is the is the tide going to turn on that at some point what will make the the tide happen where, where at what point will brands actually stop kind of taking sustainability as a sort of add-on or diversity as an add-on and actually place those things at the heart of their their businesses what a good question um i would say on the latter point possibly controversially that i think this diversity and sustainability i would separate out yeah of course i think diversity is an essential component of the conversation and I'm very grateful that it's now taking place at a more serious and senior level than it ever has before. Mm -hmm. But I would also come with a watch out that it can also fall into the bracket of identity politics, which is possibly distracting from the world is on fire. You know, the, the, the truth of diversity, I think, gets down to equality. A lot of these things, I think, if you weren't doing a shit job, then everything would be okay. Like... The Equalities Act as a framework, you know, there is a lot of robust measures in place that we should be really, really aspiring to. And there are moments in time when policy is what you need. And the danger is we end up congratulating, and why I'm harsh on this, because I obviously believe it and, you know, spent my life trying to champion uh, diversity and equality. And so I think that we shouldn't let anybody off the hook. Uh, me included and I say this from an absolute position of total privilege I'm a middle class middle aged white man like from London just as privileged as it as it gets is to really watch out that we end up applauding people achieving a baseline so under the Equalities Act and the framework we should be looking at a much better picture than we've got and all of a sudden we might start clapping people who've managed to get you know a a percentage of non-white or female places on their otherwise all white male stale pale boards Mm -hmm. that's not good enough what we should be thinking about what we look like way beyond the baseline and because we've been so far beneath the baseline we risk congratulating people achieving zero yeah and okay. we should be thinking about pluses and that's that's where i think the danger of uh some of the conversations get us to so then if we move to the sustainability point i think there's something you know if i was to prioritize the issues of the day which i think is necessary uh that's that would take precedent to me. I mean, I think there's huge issues at play: uh, the crisis of anxiety and identity, the the, the kind of erosion of democracy, um, equality, and within that, I'd really put social inequality, like the, the the wealth distribution and how poverty then pervades into extremism and everything, and the overlap between all of those, which would be identity, and then a real fundamental there's a problem is the unexpected 
and unanticipated and unknown aspects of climate change. So we're kind of still having a debate about the known knowns, as they were. But yeah. the recent fires in Australia are a good example of it because they took it by everyone by so surprise by creating thermostatic environments that uh, initiated their own weather conditions that have never been seen before on Earth, where such heat created lightning. Yeah. Like, no one. Like not, not even There's our, no precedent for that. No precedent. No one expected. Oh, what the fucking hell? And we're still reeling from it. And now we, we move on to, you know, a global pandemic. So on to the next thing. That's um, the danger, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. It seems like so long ago already. I mean, you know, surely it's time for Love Island. Um, <laughs> and so, therefore, I'm kind of like, you know, such broad brushstrokes, but uh, I'm giving that the prioritization. So I, I would declassify it from a conversation which is full of well meant issues, and I would prioritize because, you know, I think there's a need to. So I think, the, I think the companies that aren't having the conversation now will kind of find themselves going to the wall. I can't imagine three, four, five years from now that this isn't the most important choice at a kind of both a shelf side level and anything above it. The research I see takes it right down to the, you know, there's dollar a day, less than $20 a day, the kind of broad brackets of income around the world. And at the, at the lowest, you know, above a dollar a day, it's a huge consideration, particularly because there's going to be an inversion here, the bottom of the pyramid kind of economics that people think about, who kind of care the least and will just do whatever they can for their, their, their few cents per mm -hmm. day, are actually disproportionately affected by climate crisis. So they're going to actually be m way more aware of the decisions that they, they send. So you might see a, a mass like politicization of consumer choices. But ultimately, it's in there. It's in that notion of consumerism. Everyone's facing their palm oil moment, right? We have been working with a business model that is fundamentally based on exploitation since the dawn of capitalism, which was built on slavery, uh, spice. You know, the, the, the early trade systems were built on exploitation. Mm -hmm. And our business model's DNA is still informing some degree of exploitation. And the output of that exploitation now is the climate emergency. Uh, and and you know both both human and natural resources are under such duress. Last year in America, you were more likely to die going to work than you were going to war. One hundred and twenty-three thousand people died of work-related stress. Wow. Like the World Health Organization diagnosed burnout as a medical condition, and the world's on fire. Right. So, the the natural and and, and human resources that we've been building all of our firms on, it's just not going. It just doesn't work. Right. So, there needs to be a reevaluation of the engine of business and if we fuck around with it being the outer lying edges well important and essential as they are be it from brand purpose to diversity to you know all that other stuff it's yeah. the engine it's the engine of capitalism and there's no doubt of the argument that people say hans rosling and 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 all the others who's name matt ridley and that lot of course, yeah, billions of people have been lifted out of poverty and the world looks a lot better. I mean, it looks a lot better if you're a well-educated white man like they all are. But undoubtedly, yes, you know, the mass still do prove themselves. But is it good enough for the next hundred years? No. Are we going to fix it by fucking about the edges? Also, no. So this comes to the point of your question, which is therefore, what's the role of advertising? If the world is 60% over its biosphere capacity, as it's understood to be, 60%, that means there ain't no room for more stuff. So mm. the the the... The role of consumerism, get people to buy increasingly more amounts of stuff, is fundamentally flawed. And so what does, it look, what does advertising's role look like in a less growth-orientated market? Is a, is a brief worthy of the intellect and the creativity that I've met in this industry? And selling some more 
price comparison websites, sucking chicken tonight or chewing gum is worthy of the past and you will find yourself on the wrong side of history unless mm. you start rejecting those briefs, challenging your clients and questioning and standing up collectively to do the work that, that, that matters and to not do the work that doesn't matter. And that's the epicenter of change, right? New things is easy. Let's start on a sustainability initiative. Change is really hard. Stopping things, that's what's important. It's weird because like growth has seemingly become a bit of a the new buzzword in marketing in the last couple of years. You've got like growth managers, head of growth, chief growth officers, and that's kind of the underlying tone of that is kind of missing the point of what you're saying. That yeah, growth for growth's sake is is a is a is a dangerous. I in, when I ever I hear it, I replace growth with deck chair. <laughs> you are the chief deck chair officer. It is the deck it's chair less, mindset. It's, yeah, it's less. Uh, this is the Titanic, and your job is now putting more deck chairs out. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, there is, and, and I think you, we could add it, and it, but you know, that's the same bullshit as the chief purpose officer once was. And I, I had a role in inventing that as a term, you know, God, God knows. And, you know, we used to have chief technology, chief technology officers before them. And eight years ago, we had chief electricity officers, you know, we, we yeah. don't understand the redundancy as well we could with some of these things and if growth was about how do we as a business grow truly sustainably which probably means less profitably can we deal with that what's acceptable to us through different ways of working cool because the current narrative is like how do we just adjust within what we're in but the real question is if it's going to cost you x million which is coming out of your profit to turn into a carbon negative business, is your board brave enough to do that? If not, probably step the fuck aside because the rest of the business arguably wants that to happen. For the, for the short-term loss of the tuition fees for a few, come on. Before we kind of come to a close, I just wanted, we were speaking beforehand and you've got lots of writing going on at the moment. You said you're kind of focusing on a a sort of broader range of, of stuff what can people sort of look out for from you in the next in the next months or years I'm uh, with my right hand pirate Alex Barker who's an incredible woman and she's going to be taking over the Be More Pirate movement this year we are co-authoring by which I mean she's largely writing um, uh, a how to Be More Pirate Be More Pirate's a really great book and I'm incredibly proud of it I think it's 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 broken into three parts as you know the first two parts are really good and the last bit the last part is to be honest, a little bit repetitive. Um, and it doesn't really deliver on this thing that it sets out to do the last part. It's like, how do you go and do this? Yeah. And it kind of falls short. Okay. So we're writing the what should be the last section, which is based on the hundreds of people who've been really, really close to the community and how, did, how have patients and practitioners collaborated to change the NHS? How have people left city law firms and started you know, really dynamic environmental incubators? How have people rewritten the, the agency model? How you know, Those pirate stories. So that will be ready and coming out in a few months, in towards the end of summer. And then there's a, another book which I'm well into, which is taking this, all these workshops I've described um, and reframing that. The thought that's come out in my head, I'm calling professional rule breaking yeah. because it, it does justice to the paradox that I've seen and... It speaks to all of the kind of the really data. I mean, I've been recording it as best I can, and I've done some surveys to back it up. What what are the bollocks things that we do, and how do we get over them? Um, and that feels very distinct from the, the, the pirate 
metaphor. And then in my head, right at the beginning of this, I was writing a different, there was a different Be More. I see Be More kind of as a trilogy. There's three big characters in my life who all have the similarity of being on the kind of edges of things. And Pirates has been there as this thing that I've said all my life, but I didn't know the story of it. Uh, the second area are the criminals, gangsters and dealers. Right. Um, I've been incredibly privileged to work with the, the young lads who get written off by society predominantly lads I'm not saying that in a sexist term but you know 90% of the prison population is male and that's probably been concurrent with the guys that I've worked with and I've worked for years with guys in that situation and to my mind some of the most natural born entrepreneurs uh, there are um, and then the outlying edge of that being around migration and how we're unable to get our heads around that and I've kind of okay. got this idea that be more pirate be more gangster and be more migrant would be the the trilogy wow and that would make me really happy because I think they're all going back to your very good beginning question they're all wrongs that I would like to write narratives that we allow ourselves to buy into and stereotypes that do the worst thing that stereotypes do which is to subjugate and categorize potential and talent of human beings in ways that we, we really need to overcome for the world we're moving into well, I look forward to uh, reading all those wow <laughs> so just to wrap up then with these three um, final questions yes Sam, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? Um, I've always championed and believed in business as a force for good, particularly brands, and that was the whole ethos of liberty and really what social enterprise is about. And I still believe in it, but I think that it, we really need to keep an eye on it. Right. I think there is such danger... What is in that's now being exploited as a yeah. vehicle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the um, the the incredibly rich and influential few, you know, you know, no, no doubt of the good that Bill Gates has done, but the, the 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 undemocratic notion of like the huge pockets of vast wealth and therefore the decisions that are getting made about what we'll do for humanity that come down to like Gates, Bezos, you know, and a few others, and then the the fucking pathetic. Like overall, like there's no, there's not there's no power in the world more powerful than the the economic models that we've done, right? Really, name the business leader, and our best leaders at the moment are in business because they've they've largely left politics because it's been become such a problematic place in which to work. Uh, although there's excellent leaders in there, but not the caliber that we need. Like name the business that's really fucking stood up and stood out, facing proper proper crisis that you don't look at and in even the bolder statements that you don't look at and think are a bit PR like where are they so not that I don't believe it and I think there's still that is the biggest opportunity we've got to right some wrongs but like yeah the challenge is bigger than bigger than ever yeah in, in a time that requires our very best leaders to step up and stand out right we've got preposterous preposterous bellends like Elon Musk you know at least they've got like ideas that are big enough but by God you know I love you Elon but I wouldn't want you in charge uh <laughs> So where are they? Emmanuel Febert? Paul Pullman, maybe? I mean, come on, guys. So secondly, if this wasn't your mission in an alternative universe, what, what would be your, your mission? What would be the wrong you were trying to write? I would legalise the two oldest professions in the world in drugs and prostitution. I can't think of any more rank hypocrisy in the world where human beings are unnecessarily subjugated and exploited ruthlessly and endlessly in this weird 
dishonest acceptance that we we you know fucking hell you know it's going on everywhere yeah. everywhere and now finally we've worked out how to make some money out of weed like we might just about <laughs> fucking really slowly legalize it uh, tax it but yeah nonetheless fucking everywhere else people are dying unnecessarily being trafficked left right and center yeah uh, and nutters and psychopaths are making a fortune on the back of human exploitation like end it legalize it let's get real about it and then finally, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, what would it be? Uh, there is an absolute banger that I'm reading at the moment called The End of Average. And it's a really tidy little short book for those of you who, you know, sometimes embarking on a book is a bit of a big deal. If you had, you know, you'd read it in a week on your commute, no problem. It's fucking genius. And it's broadly about the guy who invented the science of averages and two other rather key figures in history, and how between the three of them, they're like the, the dark horsemen of the like, end of all of us, invented categorization, mediocrity, and averages. And it's, it, it changes your outlook on the world forever. And uh, it's really recent, and I can't believe it's had so little um, attention, but it's, I really, really, really can't recommend it enough. Okay, nice. I'll make sure we share that. Uh, Sam, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. It's been Thanks, so man. interesting. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Sorry if we went a couple bit deep, went a bit far, but you know, it's been a good conversation. Good questions. And that was amazing. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to the very end. If that sparked some interesting ideas for you, please do leave us a rating or a review in your podcast app. We really appreciate it. For more from Sam, head to bemorepirate.com, join his mailing list, follow him on social. As you've just heard, he's got some really exciting stuff in the pipeline. And join us, the Journey Further Book Club, for bite-sized insight from the best business books and chance to connect with the brightest minds in the marketing and advertising industry. And as always, if you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. It's podcast at journeyfurther.com. See you soon.